0: Good afternoon, everyone. Good to see you here in Union Road today. Let me give you a very warm welcome to that that David's already given. And today we're in Esther chapter 6. So if you haven't been with us for a few weeks or you're visiting today, we're working our way through this series and we've entitled it The Unseen God. The reason being that throughout the book of Esther, the name of God is not even mentioned once and yet it is in God's Word. If you're near a Bible, there should be one in the pew nearby at page 505. And we'd really encourage you to follow along with us today as we continue in this series. It was quite a night in Susa, the capital, the kingdom of Persia. The prime minister had fallen asleep to the sound of hammering and sawing. So satisfied was he with his friend's suggestion That He had ordered a set of gallows to be built in his back garden on which he hoped to hang the Jew Mordecai the following morning. Tomorrow he'd be able to sing those words that we know, yesterday all my troubles seemed so far away, as he dealt with the thing that was annoying him most, Mordecai the Jew. It was also quite a night in Susa, the capital of the kingdom of Persia, because across the city, in the royal bedchamber, the king Xerxes was restless. For whatever reason he couldn't sleep and the usual counting of royal sheep or crowns or whatever kings do when they can't get to sleep just wasn't working. I don't doubt he was probably troubled with indigestion because the last three chapters he's done nothing but eat. You know, every time we read about Xerxes, he's feasting and maybe that was the night that the Rennie and the Gaviscon just didn't work. Or it might simply have been the affairs of state which were just too much for him and he was anxious as any king would be. Now as a king... He couldn't sleep. As the mighty emperor of all of the Persian Empire, he could have ordered the musicians to come and play him to sleep. He could have ordered any of the women from his harem to come and entertain him for the rest of the night. He could have ordered any food, but then again there was the heartburn to think of. But that night... And you notice those are the first two words of this chapter? That night... Xerxes asked that the book of the Chronicles of the record of his reign be brought and read to him. That night. Those are two of the most profound words you're ever going to read in this chapter. That night. First thing we're going to notice today is it was book at bedtime book at bedtime, verses 1 to 4. Now, who says that history is boring? You see, Xerxes either ordered the book to be read because he was tired, and he thought that if you read a history book, well, he'd get over to sleep very quickly. Or it really was because he was troubled, that he had missed something. He had missed something. In all his busyness as a king, there was someone or something that he had missed. And he wanted to put it right. And he thought, if I just have those chronicles reread to me, it might trigger a memory and help me sort out the thing that I've missed. And as the history book is being recounted to him, look at verse 2. They stumbled across the record of Mordecai the Jew... Who had exposed an assassination attempt on the king's life by Big Thana and Teresh, two of the king's security guards? I love those names. Big Thana and Teresh. I wonder, was there a wee Thana? I don't know. I'm intrigued. What wonder there's a wee Thana or little Thana. But anyway, there's Big Thana here, Mr. Big and his mate Teresh, who sounds like the Persian equivalent of terrorist, doesn't it? But here we go, and the whole story revolves around the fact that suddenly he remembers, as he's read out, what happened in Esther chapter 2, 21 to 23. It wasn't something just plucked out of the air. This has already been recounted for us back at the end of Esther chapter 2. But Xerxes had forgotten. Mordecai, while sitting in his usual spot at the king's gate, looking out for his cousin Esther, had shared the news through her servants that there was a deadly plot to kill the king. This event got buried in all the busyness of the royal state. And then it leads Xerxes to ask the obvious question. I got verse 3. So what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for that? Has anything been done for him? And the answer, you'll also see in verse 3, no, nothing's been done for him, the attendants. We've no record of anything for him here. And you see, in a Persian society where honor is so important, and the fact that kings, their lives were always under threat, it was really important that loyalty was rewarded. And this troubled him, we'll need to sort this out quickly. Because if we just let people away and don't acknowledge the people who su- support the king, were in trouble. This was a serious omission on the king's behalf. That night, let's get this in order, the king couldn't sleep, the books were read, the record was found, and Mordecai weighed heavy on Xerxes' mind. It weighed heavy on his mind. We'll need to do something for him tomorrow morning. Tomorrow, let's sort something out for him. At that moment, right? Get us At that very moment, as he's thinking, we've got to reward Mordecai, in comes Haman. Now, Mordecai was weighing heavily on Haman's mind, but for a very different reason, I'm going to nail him if the king lets me. He had wanted a request from the king to kill Mordecai. But in all of his triumphs, he was troubled by this one man. Yes, he'd become prime minister. Yes, he'd been permission to kill all the Jews. And that was coming sooner rather than later. But he still had this trouble with this man, Mordecai, who would not bow the knee before him every time he went past him. And so on the advice of his family and friends, he got a set of gallows built and had come early the next morning to ask from the king permission to kill Mordecai. And he gets there early. He couldn't sleep for another reason. He was down to get up and just get going and get rid of this troublesome man, Mordecai. And so after a sleepless night and into this new day, whilst King Xerxes was beginning to think how Mordecai might be honored, the Prime Minister Haman arrives in the palace asking that Mordecai might be hanged. Two little words that set the whole chapter alight with intrigue that night. It all happened on that night. I couldn't resist it. But dun, 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 dun. Second thing, Haman humiliated. Verses 4 to 14, Haman humiliated. I mean, these next few verses are some of the most incredible verses in the Bible. It's one of the most amazing turnarounds, it's a tragic comedy. For those who hear in the English literature, apparently Shakespeare based three of his plays entirely on the story of Esther. We read it hardly knowing whether to laugh or cry. As Haman rushes in to ask a big question of Xerxes, he has high hopes by the end of his day all his troubles are gone. Mordecai's face will be buried forever. And in the next scene, as it unfolds with such dramatic tension, almost spoilt by the fact that we already know what's coming, look at verse 4. Verse 4 tells us the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai in the pole that he'd set up for him. So does Haman, but in a very different kind of way. As Haman waits for the king's call to be ushered in in verses 5 and 6, Xerxes has a burning question, and he thinks, who's the best person to ask for advice? I know, my prime minister, Haman. Haman. Haman comes in. Haman's rubbing his hands, thinking, great. I have a question for you, Haman. As one of my most trusted advisors, here's the question. In your opinion, what should be done for the man the king delights to honor? In your opinion, Haman, Haman's thinking, well, you know, the king delights to honor people like me. Haman wasn't expecting this, but his day just got a million times better. How kind of the king should be thinking of him? Look at verse 6. Now Haman thought to himself. Some of the translators have trouble translating that because some translators. Now, Haman thought about himself, and so he answers. And I think it's worth reading verses seven to nine. What he answers. So he answered the king for the man the king delights to honor. Let them bring a royal robe the king has worn and a horse the king has ridden, one with a royal crest placed on his head. Then the robe and the horse be entrusted to the one the king's most noble princes. Let them robe the man the king delights to honor and lead him on the horse through the city streets, proclaiming before him, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. It's Haman's wish list. This is what Haman wants for himself. This is the man who could have asked for anything at this point. Riches, power, authority in the kingdom. But instead, he wants to be seen and saluted and publicly praised. He wants to be heralded king-like with the acclaim of all the people. He wants to be the man in the street everyone looks up to and rises above them. From the horse to be ridden to the robe to be worn. He wants to be known as a member of the royal family. He wants to be seen as that cut above the rest. His pride is pervasive. It has consumed him. Riches aren't this thing. It's recognition that he wants. He wants to be seen. He wants to be known. He wants his name to be heralded across the empire as the man the king delights to honor. And having described the honor that he desired, Haman is stunned, or to use a phrase that our sportsmen love after they've lost the match. He was gutted. He was gutted. Look at verse 10. Go at once, the king commanded. Oh, humans getting excited. Get the robe. Oh, he's getting very excited. I'm the Lord. Oh, brilliant. Do just as you have suggested. Oh, for Mordecai. For Mordecai. This is the third thing we see in this passage. Mordecai is honored. Wouldn't it have been great to have seen this? Dave, you transport yourself in the You know, parts of the Bible. I would love to have seen this. I would love to be a fly on the wall. I would love to have seen Haman leading Mordecai around the city on that horse, proclaiming, this is what is done for the man whom the king delights to honor. The words must have been like gravel in his mouth. Talk about an in-your-face assignment. Picture for a moment, okay? Picture for a moment, okay? You've got Zeresh, his wife, Haman's wife, back home. He'd gone really early before dawn, rushing off, and the gallows are finished out the back. But he's been gone an awful long time now, and she's a wee bit worried about him. So she gets out her mobile, and she dials his number and says to him, Haman, the gallows are up. Where are you? This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. What's going on? I hear horses' hooves. I hear people cheering. You're not at the races again, are you, Haman? No, 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 dear. No, it's all gone terribly wrong. This is what is done to the man, the king, the likes to honor. What are you shouting about, darling? Oh, it's, it's look, it's so embarrassing. It's so embarrassing. This is what is done to the man, the king. What are you on about? As he trots around with Mordecai on the back of the horse. Listen, I can't talk. But I'll be home soon. This is what is done to the man the king delights. Okay, well, would you just keep it down? This is what is done to the man the king delights to honor. Mordecai is honored, and Haman is utterly humiliated. Haman must have scratched his head that day and thought, where did it all go? wrong. But one of the Bible's great themes from Genesis to Revelation is this. And if you forget everything else today, remember this. The greatest theme in all of the Bible is God opposes the pride but raises the humble. God opposes the pride but raises the humble. Reflect on Mordecai for just a moment. We've described them already today. He was the forgotten man of Susa. His name was hidden in the books of the chronicles of the kingdom. He had been overlooked by the king. He had served the king well. He had protected the king's life, but he had never chased public accolade. He hadn't gone looking for plaudits. He was a humble man and not a grumbler. In this whole episode, we barely hear Mordecai speak. You hardly hear Mordecai speak. He's not crowing about what he's done. He's not dining out in his, I saved the king's story. He was softly spoken. And let's face it, he's a million miles from most of us here today. I mean, I'd be really honest, as I was picturing this story, if I'd been Mordecai that day on that horse. What was that you were saying there, Haman? Say it a wee bit louder. Oh, him and the, the wee horses crying, slip. You wouldn't mind fixing it, and oh, these robes just they fit so well. But then again, you wouldn't know you're not wearing them. And what was that thing about the thing? The king delights to honour. That would have been me. But that's not Mordecai. That's having a Haman heart, isn't it? For there is in each of us that human-like heart that maybe doesn't care so much about riches, but we all love to be recognized. We all love it when we hear our name. We all love it whenever we get accolades, when people speak about us. But the principle for us is this. When no one else notices, God sees having been recognized and lauded around Susa in the king's clothes and the royal horse, where does Mordecai go? This is really fascinating. Look at verse 12. He's got off the horse, he's got the royal robes on, and where does he go? Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. He went back to the place he'd been picked up. We need to learn some vital lessons from Mordecai's life and how God raised him. Through all that has happened, Mordecai never becomes a man of vengeance. He never says, I am going to get Haman now. This is my chance. He doesn't throw a pity party and ask God, why have you forgotten me? He never tires. He keeps on going. He doesn't kick Haman when he's down. He doesn't speak against the man before the king. He's a man who's schooled in God's ways patient obedience. He's not spiteful or scornful. Here's a man who handles the glory in the same way that he handles the ordinary. And I'm going to turn a question around. Normally I would probably ask you, how do you handle suffering? But here today I'm going to ask you, how do you handle the good days? If you've recently been promoted, if you've recently recovered from illness, has something really good come to you? Are you full of what you or your family or your children or your grandchildren have achieved and you just won't shut up about it? Is your name now known in certain circles due to the new position you have of prosperity and popularity? Is your main focus what's in it for me? Where will this new accolade lead me, you think? Are you as comfortable at the king's gate in humility or are you itching to get into the king's palace to be honored? Mordecai shrugged off the limelight. And he says, just drop me off where I began. Just leave me back where I started. Folks, no matter where we're at in life today, remember the pit from which you've been dug. There's a phrase I've often heard when someone has made it big from somewhere um, someone's humble beginnings. Maybe you've heard it too. Oh, look at him now. But he hasn't let the fame get to his And in a spiritual sense, all of us have started in the same place. You and I all have terribly shady pasts. All of us do. Remember where you've come from, and in humility be thankful that the King of Kings has even bothered remembering you at all. You know, the cross is the great leveller. That's your sin that causes Christ to be sacrificed on that tree. It's Jesus who goes down in humility to the lowest place so that we might be raised to the highest place. None of us deserve the attention and the honor of the king. All of us were enemies of the king. In fact, we were actually like Big Thana and Teresh. We were big in our own eyes. Some of us are so big in our own eyes, some of us think we're great. But in reality, we're terrorists against God and his love towards us. We wanted to kill the king who had a rule over us, and we did. It was our sinful ways, your sinful ways, my sinful ways, that assassinated the king of kings on that cross, and instead of loving him, we've loathed him. Oh, what majesty, what gracious strength that Jesus faced all of this from the hands of the very people that he came to save. That the king is crowned with thorns and crucified with common criminals, so that the curse of sin might be taken from us that we might share in the sonship of the father forever jesus was trailed out of the city not on a wonderful horse but with a cross on his back how can this be we ask today If we really think about it, grace is so much more radical than we could ever dream. That God's son, the flesh of Jesus, should be our sacrifice. If we live and love and serve our Savior, oh, don't worry if the so-called important people ignore you. If the important people ignore you, or you're overlooked, or you're undervalued, the great God of heaven still, still remembers you. These verses are the pivot on which this whole story turns. Up until this point, it's been down, down, down for the Israelites. They're strangers in a strange land. Their lives are threatened by the law of the Medes and the Persians. Everything and everyone seems to have conspired against them. They're done for. They're dead. They're in for it. That leaves us with our last point today. When God seems absent, he's present. When God seems absent, he's present. He's present. Look at verse 13. Haman finally gets home and immediately as his advisors say, uh-oh, Mordecai's a Jew. We're not just dealing with the Jews. We're dealing with the great God of the Jews. They may be a people hundreds of miles from the promised land, but the reputation of the Lord, of the God of Israel, still reached Persia. They know that this is the God of Israel has protected his people for generations, the God who rescues in the most unusual ways, creating paths through torrents of water, giving military victory through trumpet blasts. This is a special people, for they spe- worship a special God. Their words reflect the truth that leads us all the way back to Genesis chapter 12. Did you know that Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3 is a summary of the whole of the world? Genesis 12, 1 to 3. It's on the screen right now. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. It's a promise made to Abraham and everyone who's in the family of faith ever since. My people will be protected. If you curse them, you will pay a terrible price. Because to human eyes, God is invisible, but our God is not passive. He never forgets the promises made to his people, nor had he forgotten his people. Let me give you three very quick examples. In China, the communist government says the church does not exist. In Iran... The Ayatollah says the church does not exist. In North Korea, the evil dictatorship there says the church does not exist. But friends, those are the three fastest growing churches in the whole world. Go figure. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. You dishonor my people, I'll dishonor and curse you. You protect and save my people and are in with me, I will protect and save you. Friend, there's only two camps. (laughs) You're either in or you're out. You're either saved or you're excluded. You're either loved or you're cursed. You're either protected or you're ejected. There's only one of two. But for God's people, and praise God, most of us sitting in here in Union Road today are one of God's saved people. Whatever threatens us, Whatever enemies we face, those who despise your faith in Christ, or maybe it's your circumstances that have pushed you to the absolute limit, God does not abandon his people. God does not abandon his people. Even when he seems absent, he's present. Even when you think you've lost everything, God uses that as an opportunity to awaken us to the realization that he's actually still in charge. Let me illustrate for you with one example as i finish. Once there was a man who was shipwrecked on an uninhabited island and he painstakingly built a hut for protection from the sun that he could keep a few items in that he'd salvaged from the wreck. For weeks he lived and every day he scanned the horizon for the approach of the ship. He longed that a ship would come and rescue him. But one evening after he'd been out scavenging for some food he returned to find his little hut was up in flames and he stood there broken hearted all that he owned, all that would keep him alive, gone in a night. And he went to sleep that night near the ashes with tears flowing. He cried himself to sleep. Early the next morning, he awoke to see a ship anchored 100 yards offshore. He couldn't believe it. And he began to wave frantically to hope that someone would see him, only to hear a voice behind him saying, we saw your smoke signal last night. And we've come to rescue you. Everything that man owned, up in smoke. But that enabled him to be rescued. Friends, let me ask, where are you in that story today? Are you trying to build your own little fortress... Establishing ourselves and our names and our reputation. Or does it take for something like that to go, woof until we realize that where our help comes from? What was it Jesus said in the very first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit who say, Lord, I'm spiritually bankrupt. I've got nothing to give you. Jesus said, "Theirs." is the kingdom of heaven. And friends, today he knows your heart, he's heard your signal, and he's not in the business of turning people away. For in the final analysis, God is not impressed with earthly towers, but humble hearts. Mordecai, Esther, and the Israelites were soon to discover this as they turned to the only one who would save them. But here's the thing that gets me most in this book as we finish this morning. This is an incredible story, undoubtedly. But if I was to ask you this question, even boys and girls, the young people here today, is this a miraculous story? Where are the miracles in the book of Esther? Do any miracles take place in the book of Esther? No. No. There's not even one miracle recorded in the whole book of Esther. Not one. There's not a miracle in sight. Nothing happens to the characters that is out of the ordinary. They all play to type, don't they? Haman does the pride thing. Xerxes does his indecisive king thing. Esther does her spa and beauty prayer and fasting thing. Mordecai does his humble servant of God thing. And what does God do? The God thing. The story of Esther is a clear reminder that we are not to be looking for the miraculous around every corner because behind it all, God works through means. Ordinary people like you and me, you might say, I don't feel him. I don't see him. How do I know he's there? You got up today, right? It's something to get you here. Good. You washed your face. You ate your breakfast. You got here safely. You're sitting in your seat. Your heart is still beating. How'd that all happen? Because God's here, and God has given you that. Oh, it mightn't be in the big miraculous that people push for, but the very fact you're sitting here today is another example of God's gracious, ongoing mercy towards you. Please, friend, never say that God is not at work just because you can't see him. Because the God I read about in this book is bigger and better than all of that. Because if you worship a God who you're just looking for miracles all the time, friends, you're worshiping a genie in a bottle rather than the Lord of the scripture. What did I sing with the kids last week? It's the God of the big, the God of the little, the God of the stuff, somewhere in the middle. Friends, he's here all right. He's here all right. And he's working in here even as I speak because you see when God seems absent he's present and some need to hear that again today he's here and he's with you and if God is for us who can be against us Our gracious God, today, again, we ask for humble, contrite hearts. Hearts that take us to that place that reminds us that we are sinners saved by grace, that we are spiritually bankrupt. And you give us all that we need. That we are people who have a wonderful God who works through the ordinary stuff of life as well as the extraordinary. Father, as people, flesh and blood, mere mortals here today, We thank you for the promise that you can make us sons and daughters of a most high God, that you can robe us in your righteousness all because of Jesus who was stripped and hung and crucified, the one who was dragged out of the city so that we might be raised to the status of the king. Father, we pray that for ourselves. We pray that for your servants, the Kellys, who we've heard about today in Mozambique. We pray that for all those who are servants of yours. We pray that for the church in Iran and North Korea and China today. Father, may we learn the lesson afresh that you raise the humble and you bring down the pride. Lord, may we not be big in our own eyes. But may you fill our eyes and may we see the greatness of our God so that your people here in Union Road today would be able to say that the Lord, our God, is with us.